0: Well, good evening, church. Good to be here with you. If I'm not moving around as much as I normally am, you'll have to forgive me. I actually pulled something in my arm and my back last night or yesterday, and so I'm not my normal animated self tonight. Uh, so it's interesting. They gave me the wireless mic tonight on the one night that I told them I'm probably not going to be moving around too much. So go figure. Um, Tonight, we're going to be looking at the Sixth Commandment. But before that, I wanted to talk to you about words and their meanings. Now, I'm kind of a nerd. I, I like to sit around and think about what words mean sometimes. I don't know if you guys have ever tried to do that. Do you all ever sit around and think about what words mean? I I, I think that this is a very important aspect of our culture that we really often overlook. What do words mean? How do words come in and out of vogue? How do they pass through our common vernacular? And we see this, right? I mean, how long has it been since someone said, oh, groovy, right? Or how long has it been since, if you're in my generation, someone said, oh, tubular, right? Right? So these words just, they pass out of existence. I mean, they, they relegate themselves to antiquity and, and, and jokes, right? But they still are words. And, and what's interesting is, even though that they have passed themselves out of common existence or common vernacular, if you say them, you still get chuckles, you still get responses, because people know what you're talking about. I find it interesting that in a world that's so obsessed with subjective truth, we find ourselves daily looking at granular definitions of things, especially as we argue over nuance. And I find it funny as well that people try their best to pull these kind of uh, mental Houdini acts when it comes to definitions of terms, as long as they play to their own strengths. Now I was a kid. Uh, I can't say a kid. I was in high school when uh, Bill Clinton was president, and so I very much remember the whole impeachment scandal. And I, I still will never forget when he was under oath in deposition uh, for the uh, the goings on, and the prosecutor asked him a question about the relationship between himself and then intern Monica Lewinsky. And was there any type of inappropriate action there? Is that how you define what happened? And I'll never forget his answer. Well, it depends on what you mean by is. Is is what is means or something to that effect? I mean, it, it's just about as ridiculous. And so when we think about this fluidity of language and how we define things, right? Right? But there has to be some baseline of truth, because if there wasn't something there that these words adhered to, some concept that we agree to be true, then what's the point in communicating? I mean, we might as well be comparing apples to unicorns. There's no standard by which we have any baseline for communication. So tonight we're looking at the sixth commandment. You're probably wondering, okay, why, where is this going? Because I, I want to look at a couple of different aspects of this. We're going to go a little bit differently uh, as we approach this commandment. Now, the commandment itself is pretty straightforward. If you look both in Exodus 20 verse 13 and in the retelling in Deuteronomy 7, uh, sorry, 5, 5:17, they both say the same thing. You shall not. The word here is important, and we're going to look at this. For now, we're just going to lay on the table, you shall not bring about death. But we're going to define this in just a minute, so bear with me. You see, there's a cognitive problem here. If we go about defining this in a certain way, with a certain connotation to it, there actually is an issue that modern atheists have picked up on. If God is perfect and his laws are perfect, that's fine. But yet God commands his people at periods of time in the Old Testament to cause death or intentionally bring about death. You see, this is, this is an issue in their minds. If God's laws are imperfect that means God is imperfect. Or if God's laws are perfect, that means that God himself is, as the philosopher Paul Kapan says, a moral monster, not worthy of our own worship. See, tonight I want to look at a couple different concepts here. I want to look at this term or this commandment as it relates to the intentional causing of death and where this concept derives like I said, the text itself simply says, or is commonly translated as, you shall not kill. Now there's three points to my sermon tonight, three different parts I want to look at. First off, what is really being said by this commandment? Two, is God truly inconsistent in what he asks? And lastly, what is the truth behind the vernacular of the commandment? So first off, What is truly being said in this commandment? There are numerous words in the Hebrew language for the words, or for the infinitive to kill, to bring about death. The Hebrew word used in this commandment, in this segment, is the Hebrew word rasa. This is used to mean to kill with intentionality, to murder. But it implies something that is not implied in the others. And that is this idea of blood guilt. Now, we're going to come back to this in just a second. But I want you to keep that in mind. While it can mean to kill, to bring about death intentionally, the best way to translate this word is, as you said, murder. Now, there is another word that is commonly used in the Hebrew term or in the Hebrew uh, language, It's the word harag. Now, this word is used numerous times. And again, it references some type of intentional killing of another person. But it's also not so much used in the context that we're talking. It's used in a more general sense, whether through war, whether through bringing about of justice, whether through self-defense or some type of... uh, intermediary action this word is better translated i think to say to slay now you're probably thinking all right paul you're you're arguing semantics at this point but i'm really not word choice is important like we've already defined words have power words have meaning if i, I had this discussion with one of our trello students the other day if i said that bob walked in the room and his eyes bounced from person to person, as he found a place to sit. We have an idea that his eyes are moving across the different people, making mental recognition of the faces that he sees. But would you say that that is a positive or a negative connotation? Generally, most people will probably say it's positive. The idea bounced implies maybe something rapid, but still doesn't imply anything negative. Now, let's say we say Bob, Bob's eyes darted to the different faces as he walked in the room looking for a place to sit. You still have the same idea, right? His eyes are moving, scanning faces. You still have the same rapidity of action. That, that rapidness is intrinsic to that word. But there's a difference here. While the actions might be the same, while the actions might have the same outcome and the same effectualness, we understand them differently. To say that Bob's eyes bounced from person to person and to say Bob's eyes darted from person to person is saying two different things about the state that is intrinsic to Bob. In one case, we can assume at least that Bob is not in danger. He's probably in a better state of mind and probably in a better frame of reference. But to say that Bob's eyes darted from person to person connotatively leads us to believe that there is either danger or some sense of incredulity there, something there that is wrong with Bob that leads him to move his eyes in the way he does. So word choice is absolutely important. Now, interestingly enough, the word harag is also the word that is used when Cain slays Abel. And you're probably thinking, well, this doesn't seem right. Because we do. We say this is the first murder. We identify this action with murder, right? But there's something interesting here. Don't forget what I said about blood guilt. This idea of a life-altering judgment aspect being tied to you or to the proponent of this. Now, we see this when we see the Rasa in Thou shalt not murder. But how do we see this in Cain, in Abel's case? Well, Cain was punished. He was cursed, he, was, he did have judgment passed on him. But remember what it says shortly after in Genesis 4. Genesis 4 8, we finally hear or we get the uh, this sentencing of Cain. But yet God says, when he asks Cain, where is your brother? And Cain says, how do I know? Am I my brother's keeper? What does God say? Your brother's blood cries out from the ground which drank it. The blood guilt was established at that first incidence. The first time another human being slayed another, out of anger, out of resentment, out of bitterness, out of hatred. That was when God established that need for blood guilt. So could it have been a harag beforehand? Yes, because when God deemed his curse upon Cain, he established that need for there to be recompense. And from that point forth, God said, you shall not rasah, you shall not murder and lead to blood guilt. Now, we're going to come back to this in just a second. Let's move on to our second idea. Is God truly inconsistent looking at his commandments and yet still commanding his people to kill hundreds of uh, thousands of or, uh, Canaanites? You see, this is really the issue. If we, again, try to define things in God's terms, we can never make sense of them. To understand what God is trying to say, we either have to do one of two things. We have to presume that we can understand the mind of God, or we can take him at his word. But let's say that's not good enough for you. Let's look in Joshua 11, verses 16 through 20. And I'll tell you, when, when researching this topic, I was telling Elias, I, there, there's only four words in this verse. <laughs> That's going to be interesting to exegete. How, how do you exegete a four-word verse that still has so many implications across the Bible? And so thankfully, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God said, uh, there's a lot more to read. And so here we go. We're going to go trek into the Old Testament. So Joshua 11, verse 16 through 20. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all that the Negev and the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Halak which rises toward Sierra as far as Balgad and the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all of their kings and struck them and put them down. Joshua made war a long time with these kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites. The Inhabitants of the Gibeon, they took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should not come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, here we have a very clear picture of God's commanding the Israelites. It says God made this an order. He commanded Moses, and we know what happened with Moses, right? And so, as the baton passes to young Joshua, who carries this commandment forward into the promised land, it's now on Joshua's shoulders to lead the Israelites, not in, you know, this, you know, parade through their new hometown, he's leading them through bloody conquest, Through war. And city by city, territory by territory, king after king is brutally cut down. The words here are put to the edge of the sword, but this is an ancient euphemism for killed, dead, right? These people groups are completely annihilated. The command is not to leave anything that breathes alive and to burn it all. To the ground. So then the question is how come the Hebrews, who at this point have already received not just the first telling of the commandments, but also the second telling of the commandments, how come the Hebrews who know God's law, how come that they are doing the very thing it seems like God is prohibiting? Well, this is what we call in philosophy, a primary cause. Now, this term, primary cause, delineates where an action takes its place from, from what leads to all subsequent actions. For example, if I had my phone here on the, on the thing, and I picked my phone up, you can say the primary cause is I moved my hand and picked it up. But let's say I had my glass of drink over there, up here, and I picked my glass of drink up. You could still say the same thing. My hand moved the cup. But what's the primary cause? I'm thirsty. That's the reason why that action happened. Now, we could say, well, that's nuances. You're going too far with that. I, I don't think you can, especially in this regard. You see, this is a commonly held philosophical belief that at some point, there is a first cause for which actions originate. And as they relate to agents, humans, that cause generally comes from an intent, a rational decision that is made. Now, this makes it easy, then, to see where this goes. In the case of Joshua... The intent was to adhere to the command. In the case of Cain and Abel, what was the intent? Anger, bitterness, frustration that God didn't accept his sacrifice, resentment at his brother for having something better than he did. You see, it's easy then to delineate the actions. The same effect might have happened. But the actions are starkly different. Why? Because the first cause for both of them was uniquely different. Now, let's go back to this question that's on the table. See, the question that many non-theists levy against theists, specifically in Christians, is how could a good God do something that seems horrible? And it seems like this passage seems to prove that God is truly a monster. But I would say no. In fact, it does quite the opposite. In fact, I'm going to even double down on this and say not only does it show that God is not a monster, it shows us one of the truest attributes of who and what God is, and that is God is perfect. Now, follow with me for just a second as I make a case really quickly to show how this breaks down. You see, God's perfection demands, necessitates, that he can never have any attribute that is less than maximal at the highest possible conceivable level. And he cannot abide a contradiction in his nature as well as he cannot be wrong in any case. To be perfect entails that he has nothing wrong in him, no contradiction, and all of his attributes are at the highest conceivable levels possible. See, a violation of any of these breaks God's perfection and makes God not who he says he is. So, if God is evil, or God was evil, he cannot, by definition alone, do anything that is good. Because at that point, he would not be perfectly evil. That would break his maximality. And if we see God doing anything good, which we see he does, then he can't be evil because he cannot have an internal contradiction. He either has to be perfectly evil or perfectly good. Now, while we see events that might be deemed as questionable, The very fact that we see God performing actions that are beneficial and good by standard definition defines God as perfectly and maximally good. It has to, by very definition alone. And so if God is wholly good and not internally contradictory, he cannot be wrong in any way, then any command that he issues must also be equally good and non-contradictory in any way, regardless of our understanding of it. So what does this mean then? This means that God, since he is not, he cannot be both evil and good. That would break his perfection. He has to be either all evil or all good. Since God does things definitively that are good, he cannot be all evil. Therefore, he has to, by logical entailment, be all good. And anything he does has to stem from that goodness, because if not, it would not have that same level of perfection. So that means that when it comes to a question like the Israelites killing off these indigenous peoples in the land of Canaan, to us in our human brain, we may think that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. But let's go again. Let's go one more time around this merry-go-round. You and I constantly do things that are wrong, right? Let's say it's not even a moral question. Let's just say it's a simple matter of your own intrinsic fallacies. How many of you guys have, while walking, let's say with the light off somewhere, bumped a table you misjudge the distance between you and an object. Guess what? That's a flaw in your own judgment. You are not perfect. How many of you have tried to high five somebody without doing that whole look at their elbow thing and missed whoosh, entirely? Guess what? You're not perfect. That's a flaw in your own depth perception and coordination. You see, who are we in our flawed nature to challenge? An all-perfect, maximally good God, and so definitions that we may think don't make sense make perfect sense to Him. And so, when we question God in our imperfect and flawed state and say, "But that doesn't sound fair," God clearly says to us in His text, "My ways are not your ways; my thinking is not yours. I'm." God, who are you? So let's get back to what this command is really saying. Earlier we read a passage out of 1 John, and I think this really sums it up. But before we get there, I want to point you to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells us, while he's addressing the crowds there on the side of the mountain in Matthew 5, he says, you've heard that... To kill is wrong. Thou shalt not murder. But he says, I tell you, anyone who looks at his brother with hate in his heart is a murderer. Anyone who says to someone, you fool, is in danger of the Sanhedrin or the fires of hell. Now, we're going to come back to this in just a second. But there's something here I don't want to miss. We're going to lay this down first. There's something very important about this commandment as Jesus restates it. And if you notice what it is, it's right there. It's the fact that it's an internal question. Notice it's not an external action. It's an internal question. Earlier, Brittany read to us in 1 John, where John says anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You see, Jesus was concerned with the heart he was concerned with the nature of the person. So let's go back, right? Let, let, let's, let's kind of look at this one more time again. He says, I'm gonna, I just want to read this one more time. He said, you've heard this from the beginning, that you should love one another. You should not be like Cain, who was of the evil and one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. In other words, Cain hated his brother. There was was a disconnect there. We know that we have passed out of death to life because we love our brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life. You see, it's that hatred that comes from our own intrinsic brokenness, our own sinful hearts. That is what leads us to bear that blood guilt. When we take life of our own will, of our own twisted desires, of our own jealousy, hatred, greed, malice, all of these things, when we take up that mantle that Cain took up and slay our brother and sister simply out of anger and hate. We bear the blood guilt because it falls on the hatred and corruption that is within our own hearts. You see, our reasons are not centered on God's reasons. That's why the Israelites didn't bear the blood guilt. They were following God's commands. But was Cain following God's commands? No. He took it upon his own self and his own righteousness in his own eyes to enact this act. And that is why he bears the blood guilt. That is why this is commanded against. So three reasons why I wanted to leave you with. Why is hatred really the core? Why is this so affrontive to God? Well, three reasons. One, Hatred is a corruption of the nature of the gospel. Uh, I, can't, I can't remember if it's Brady or Kevin, one of, one of the two, who said earlier that we're going to point us, I think it was Kevin's prayer, point us back to the nature of the gospel. I thought that was really well said. Because what is murder, right? It is the taking of life through the absence of love. You don't love somebody you murder. What's the nature of the gospel? To give life through love and forgiveness. You see, murder is antithetical to the gospel. But secondly, it's also a willful disrespect of the Imago Day. Each one of us bears the image of God. To smite someone in anger, to murder someone maliciously, is to basically thumb your nose at the image of God and say, I don't care if you're an image bearer. Equal respect and dignity. You deserve to die. But more to the point, at its core, murder is pride. It basically says that for whatever reason, I am better than you. And we see all these come to play. Right? To murder someone is to remove life and love from somebody. That's, like I said, the antithesis of the gospel. It's a willful, direct intent to destroy that image-bearer is to say, I deserve to live while you do not. Now, I find it interesting in this other part, and maybe you've heard this before, maybe you haven't. Like I said, I'm kind of a words guy, so I had to look it up. Where Jesus says, anyone who says, you fool, is subject to the Sanhedrin, right? This idea of exclaiming, basically insulting somebody. This word used for you fool is the Aramaic word raka. And you think, okay, so they're insulting him. So that means anyone who insults me gets his supernatural just desserts, right? No, that's not what that means. The word here, raka, is a word that means useless. It's an Aramaic word that means useless. futile not worthy to exist in other words to say to someone you deserve to die cuz you're worthless you're you're sucking up air you have no business even existing That's what Jesus is saying. What does that mean then? That means you pridefully have to look at that person and judge them in your own mind, in your own heart, that they are not worthy of the same life that you've been graciously given. That is pride, and it is wrong, and it is a sin, which is why this action is condemned. You see, there are motivations to our actions And we cannot separate the motivation from the action itself. Jesus said that hatred is the root of murder. And that is what brings the blood guilt. So what's the point as I wrap up here? I really think that the reason we study the commandments and why it's so important that we do is because they're often very misunderstood. We often say we're a New Testament church, right? And so we sometimes forget that there's a whole other section of the Bible back there that we need to go back and and dive through. But I think that people have tried to advocate for the commandments, but I think in some cases they do so in ways that are just not true. And so I want to dispel a couple of rumors in this last few seconds I have here. First off, this passage or this commandment does not mean that we as Christians have to sit by idly while the world just runs amok. I mean, there are ways and reasons in which we have to protect life, to protect justice, right? There are justifications for things like war. And this commandment is, more importantly, not a commandment to pacifism. Christians were not called to be pacifist. You see, my covenant with my wife before God to guard my family and to guard her usurps anybody's right to life that intends harm to us. It's one biblical command against another. How do you weigh that? Very simply. When they intend harm to my family and I, their right to life is negated or at least becomes subservient to my covenant, to my family. And so absolutely, if someone tries to harm your family, you have a right, a biblical, I would say imperative, to protect them. Our job as Christians is to follow the commandments in ways that best benefit God's kingdom. And part of that means that we have to fight for things. We have to fight for those things that God has given us. Things like life and dignity and revelation in Scripture and in freedom. But there are some causes that are not biblically sound. And part of knowing the difference is having the determination to seek the truth of the Holy Spirit so that we know which causes are righteous, And which ones are prideful? But the bottom line here is the most important thing to remember. Is that God is perfectly good. And ultimately, his commands can never, by definition, be wrong. And it is our own wickedness, our own hearts, that can lead us to a place where we take on that blood guilt and that judgment.